because they came in and they sat in different seats today than usual. Let, let may that be leading us in the same way that we can break loose and sit even in different pews on Sunday morning. I know that's a, a rough way to start off a sermon, ruffling feathers, serious feathers that way. But, you know, we're talking about grace today. And uh, I'm sorry, my name is Drew Smith, and I get to be the pastor here. Again, I also welcome you, those that are here with us physically and those with us um, online. But today, uh, as we're journeying through this uh, exploration of God's goodness and what that means for us, today we're looking at how God is grace-filled and how we are to be grace-filled as well. Now, we, we need to explore just a little bit what the definition of this word grace. You know, when I usually uh, when you say the word grace, a lot of times what happens, what happens even in, in me is that I'll picture people whose names are grace. And then uh, other things we think of about grace, is we think about, you know, like a ballerina who who dances with such power and grace, we might Say, But what we're talking about, when we talk about grace, uh, the, the word grace actually flows from the, the Hebrew and the, the Greek word for gift. That grace is at its essence, it is a gift. It's not something that we deserve. And it, it is the, the very nature of God uh, that he is one that is characterized by grace. Um, the most common phrase used about God in the Bible is he, that, that God is slow to anger Quick to forgive and filled with steadfast love. And that, that word steadfast love is another one that is bathed in grace. That he's, God is one who gives. I mean the very first act. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing and, and no one deserved there to be anything. But God created. He gave. And we're told in John 3.16, that passage you see at all kinds of sporting events. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so if I were to focus in on what we, what I'm meaning today and what we mean at the essence of grace. It is undeserved forgiveness from Jesus. Undeserved forgiveness from Jesus. This is the notion of biblical grace. Not only that we get uh, what we don't deserve, but what we do deserve, we don't get. Uh, the, The story of the New Testament, the story of Jesus, is that Jesus gets what we deserve so that we get what he deserves. And we are made right with God, not because of anything that we bring to the table. I mean, God loves and gives to you and to me, not because you're so cute or clever. You, you might be cute and clever, but that's not. It is, it is not about you or me. It is about the very nature of God as one who is filled with grace. Now, that notion of grace can be controversial. I mean, are you saying there's no such thing as sin? No, I'm not. And we'll talk about that. I'm saying, matter of fact, there is something very real about sin, but grace is even greater. 
This passage that we're going to look at is actually a controversial one. It's one that we, it's, it's, uh, if you look back over the history of the Bible and the thousands of manuscripts, sometimes this passage is in John, sometimes it's in the end of John, sometimes the middle, sometimes it's in the Gospel of Luke, at different places, and some Bibles don't even have it at all. And part of the, it's part of the, you look back at, and what I love about the, our history of the Bible, we don't try to hide that history. The, the Bible is a, a real book that has traveled through time. We've got all these copies of all these different versions throughout history to, to show you know, how, yeah, it, it has changes in it over the course of time. And our goal is to study all of that and say, what were the original manuscripts? And, and this one was one uh, that has a lot of controversy, but we intend to include it. And the reason we include it is because it's so controversial. Because it's so difficult. One of the, the rules of textual criticism is if the story is hard to believe, then it probably belongs. Because what would have happened over the course of thousands of years of copying these documents is that the scribe would have said, oh, that's a hard one to believe. Let's get rid of that. And would have not copied it. It's highly unlikely something as controversial as this, somebody would say, oh, let's put this in. In the, the early years of these copies. That's one of the reasons that we say ah, it probably was in there. Now, you're really wondering, aren't you? What passage are we talking about? Well, it's John chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Actually, starting with the very last verse of chapter 7. Um, and it's the story, some of you may remember, it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. If you want to look on your pew Bible, it's page 894, or you can follow along on the screen. One of the interesting stories, St. Augustine, he was a Christian in northern Africa in like the 4th century. He argued that it should be included. And the reason he argued it, that it should be included is because there were a lot of men around him who were saying, hey, this sort of gives women the freedom to commit adultery if they wanted to, so we should take it out. And that was... Literally one of his writings as to why it should be kept in the scriptures. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your written word as it speaks to us of your truth. Now, open our minds, our hearts, our souls to receive that truth from you. So that we might believe it, we might live it, and it might impact what we say and do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. John chapter 8, starting verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the first thing we see in this passage is that everybody needs grace. You need grace. I need grace. And Jesus gives grace to everyone. That undeserved forgiveness of Jesus comes to us because we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, as Paul says in his letter to the Romans. Some some today want to argue that their really sin is an outdated concept. This notion of disobedience to God, of rebellion to God, that that's outdated and we need to, to move beyond that notion of us being uh, selfish or broken. Um, I, I, I think that's misguided. I think that's a denial of reality. I just I often just say, have you read the newspaper or watched the news? Have you been on Twitter? Yeah, that any any of that helps to to demonstrate that for us. But I thought I'd bring a quote uh, appropriate for today uh, from uh, given this is the holiday weekend for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. One of my favorite weekends because it is a holiday for a preacher of the gospel. Uh, So uh, that I get to celebrate uh, abundantly more. But he had the same issue in his day that, that people wanted to say that. Sin was an outdated concept. Here, here from one of his sermons in the late 50s. We face the new psychology and it furnished us with a lot of words and a lot of phrases to explain certain weaknesses of human nature. And so we very easily dismiss the word sin. And we start talking about phobias and inhibitions. And we reached over to Freudian psychology and said that it's a conflict between the id and the super ego. Any of us, if we took intro to psychology in high school, you know, all of a sudden we're remembering those, uh, some of those classes. But when man got through talking in terms of all his, his bombastic psychological phrases, he discovered that at the bottom he was still a sinner before Almighty God. And that at bottom, the conflict is not between the id and the superego, but the conflict is between God and man. And the universe stands with that glaring picture of the reality of life, that man is a sinner. We are sinners in need of God's redemptive power. We can never escape that fact. Everybody needs grace because everyone is a sinner. Now, grace is not the freedom to sin. It's never loving to want people to sin. Sin is destructive. God has created us in, in beautiful ways to live and to life to full. And when we go our own way, we destroy what God has created, hurting us, hurting others, dismissing God. But so grace is not the freedom to sin, never loving for one to live in sin. But because we all sin, we need God's grace. 
And in here, in this, our passage here, two groups. They're the religious leader and the women. Two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yet both need grace. Now, let's take a look at the religious leaders. How exactly do they need grace? And, and some of us here may be able to relate better to the religious leaders. Some maybe to the, the, the woman in the midst of her helplessness as well. Uh, but largely... The Bible was written for the church, for people who are following God. And so us, you know, most of us as religious folks who are here today, we need to listen really carefully to what Jesus says to the religious leaders in in his day, because that's who we may be. And what, what happened with these religious leaders in Jesus' day is... They get focused on punishment rather than forgiveness. They they get focused on correcting the other instead of loving the other. Again, it's not diminishing sin. Loving another, when they are headed to the edge of a cliff, it is loving to grab them and say, Hey, don't go that way. It will destroy you. We, We can be focused... These religious leaders were on not sinning instead of loving in accordance to God's steadfast love. I used to play pickup basketball at the Y. It it got coveted and we don't play anymore. Uh, But I never was really a very talented player. I just liked to run up and down the court and every once in a while they'd throw me the ball. And uh, one of the guys that I was playing with said, you know, I didn't play. I couldn't make the middle school team. I couldn't make the high school team. Um, and uh, but they still let me play. And one of the guys as we were playing, he says, you know, Drew, you you play basketball a lot like you're trying not to make a mistake. He said, don't do that. Try to make a good play. Stop trying to avoid a mistake. Instead, play to make the shot or make the good pass or make a defensive steal. I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a good word. And that's a good word for, for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Hey, stop trying to correct sin as your primary purpose. Instead, start acting out of love to those around you. Stop, stop trying to, to curtail and correct. Instead, live in the fullness of how God's grace and mercy and his steadfast love celebrate his forgiveness. See, the religious leaders in this passage, they're using this woman for their own advantage. They, they, don't, they do not love that woman. Why why would you you pull her out in front of the crowd? I mean, we're told they're at the temple. There's a crowd all around. And they're bringing her out, using her for their goal to try to trap Jesus, which is clear in the the text. They they might could argue that they're loving the community. That's one of the things that uh, you could say. Well, we're trying to rid the community of, of this infidelity. And it's like, no, you're not. Because if you're really trying to do that, it takes two to commit adultery. If you're trying to rid the community, where's the other person? Where's the man? 
You don't even love the law. Because the law that you quote says you're to bring both man and woman. And that you're to stone them yourselves. So you you don't love the community, you don't love the law, and you don't love God. Because God's standing right in front of you in the flesh. And you're trying to trap him. They're, they're seeking their own selfish agenda. They need God's grace. Now, the, the, the woman is in the same boat. She too was, was caught in the act. And she too was acting in rebellion to God. We don't know her story, but we know That's true. And now she's been fully exposed to the whole community. She needs God's grace. She needs God's forgiveness. She needs God's cleansing. Wherever you may find yourself in this story... We need God's grace. I love the explanation of the church saying, we just are a bunch of beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We are sinners telling other sinners where to find peace, forgiveness, relief from guilt and shame, and power. To live life to the full. That's the church. And then in this story, Jesus gives grace to all. There's, this this uh, story has brought on more opinions and thoughts and ideas. What is Jesus doing when he crouches down you know, and Told, takes his finger and writes in the dirt in the midst of the crowd. You know, there's a crowd all around. There's now these Pharisees. And now there's the the woman who's in in front of them all. And the the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, okay, Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he writes. Do you know the other place in the Bible where God writes with his finger? It's in the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments. That God, we're told, the finger of God writes in the stone, the Ten Commandments. See, this is a story that brings the disruption of Jesus to the point, to its apex. Because Jesus has come to say that there's now a new law. The old law, it is, it is now fulfilled in Jesus. That's why there's no longer need for all the sacrificial system, the sacrificial offerings. There's no longer need for the purity codes and the what you can eat and what you can't eat. I mean, Jesus, if nothing more, gave us the opportunity as you've, we all celebrate that we can eat bacon. And we can go to Eli's barbecue without uh, any fear. And that, that I, I can wear socks that, you know, look all different kinds of colors. I don't have 
clothing things that we have to wear. Jesus comes to bring a new law. And that's what he brings when he crouches down with his finger. You have God writing. Now, there's now a new way. There's now a a new way that we live based on the law of old. But now fulfilling, as Paul says in Galatians, the law of Christ. And the, the core focus that he tells him is now, whoever has not sinned, throw the first stone. And Jesus says something similar to this in other passages, in Matthew chapter 7 particularly. He says, now what we're to do when it, in this understanding and revelation of sin... And this living in in life of grace is we need to focus on ourselves first. Because that's what he had them do. I mean, they're there, man. They're they're rocked up. They got the rocks. They're ready to roll. He says, okay, if you haven't sinned, then you can throw the first stone. And I don't even think Jesus meant in their whole life. I think he meant just in bringing this woman to me. He's calling them out on the sin that I've already described. That they were out not to love God, not to love the community, but to carry out their agenda. To protect their own power. Because Jesus was threatening them. And what I love, the the older, wiser ones, they're the first ones to lead. You can almost hear the stones drop. As then they slowly walk away. So what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7 when he says, be careful when we judge one another. Because how you judge others is how you'll be judged. And it's in that story in Matthew 7 that he gives that famous parable. So what you need to do is be sure you take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. So for us... As a a church that's seeking to follow after Jesus, what we need to hear from him to be grace-filled, we need to focus first on ourselves and our own sin before we start looking at others. Jesus got in all kinds of trouble because he wanted to, to care for people outside of the appropriate boundaries of people. You know, the uh, people would call him a friend of sinners, a glutton and a drunkard even because he hung out with people who were sinners and who were outside of the, the appropriate boundaries of people. Uh, I encourage you uh, this Next Saturday, we have a a listening class. And it's one of the great ways of listening first to ourselves. Listening to ourselves. Then we also listen to others. And then we listen to God. And it's a great opportunity of truly living into the... Learning how to live into this grace, being a grace-filled church. It's in Galatians 6 that, that Paul tells us, when we do encounter another one who's in sin, that we gently restore them according to the law of Christ. But in so doing, he gives grace to these religious leaders and and sends them on their way 
having stopped them in the midst of their sin and sending them now to encounter God in his forgiveness. But then he goes down again as they're leaving. He goes down again to, to draw in the dirt when it's just him and the woman. Can you imagine? I can't imagine what she... She's probably just wrapped in the sheets that contained her in her act of adultery and has been paraded in front of the whole church. It'd be like somebody coming in here. And he goes down again. And the other thing I like, love about this, this picture of God stooping down to write in the earth for us. You know, it's just very different than Moses. Moses had to go up on the mountain to meet with God. But Jesus is a picture of God coming down to us to give us this new way, this grace-filled way of living. And then he stands up and proclaims to her, Is anybody here condemning you? They've all left. They've gone. And then Jesus' words that demonstrate this scandalous grace. I don't condemn you either. Those are the words of Jesus Every human being. Like I said, everybody needs grace. Every one of us falls short. The love of God, that steadfast love of God to you and to me, destroys all guilt and shame. It was destroyed at the cross. Jesus took that on himself. When he died, he went into the grave and he left that guilt and shame. And then he was raised to new life, demonstrating the power of God's love over sin and guilt and shame and the power of his forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. And then he frees her. Frees her also. Now you go and live. Sin no more. Jesus has taken the punishment on himself. So he doesn't punish us. He wants to free us and lead us. To transform us. Into a life. Of. According to his wisdom. His goodness. That, friends, is the purpose of the church. Not to be a place that condemns, but to be a place where we are transformed. The wonder of God's grace leads us to to be totally honest with ourselves. We, we don't have to try to cover things up. We don't have to try to paint them a different color. We can say, no, I'm broken. 
I'm selfish. I'm rebellious. God, help me. And I've been a pastor for 33 years. And I'm still saying that. And the good news is that God has, does not condemn. Didn't condemn me when I asked him that 45 years ago. And he didn't condemn me when I asked him that just a few minutes ago as Colleen was leading us. And he doesn't condemn you either. Now, at the end of the service, we're going to have time of prayer. There will be folks under both of these doors here just praying for whatever your particular needs might be. And if today is a day when you're, you're really feeling that, that guilt, that shame, you're, you're really relating either to the religious leaders or to the woman caught in adultery in some way, whatever way that may be you, I invite you to go to those doors and just share that with the, and you don't have to give them any details. Just tell them you want to experience God's forgiveness. You, you, you need to, to taste and feel His grace. And they'll gladly pray with you and for you. And that'll stay just between you and them that time. And maybe not. Maybe not at uh, this time. But maybe at another. Invite you. This is why every Sunday that we gather, we have a time of confession. Because we believe sin is real. And we believe God's grace is real. And that God's grace in Jesus is even greater no matter what. I want to close with another quote from the same sermon from Dr. King. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more exceedingly. That's the Christian faith. On the one hand, it is the most pessimistic religion in the world, for it recognizes the tragic and awful dimension of man's sin. But on the other hand, it is the most optimistic religion in the world, For it recognizes the heightening dimensions of God's grace and how God's grace can come in and pick up so that over against man's sin stands God's grace. Christianity, therefore, becomes the greatest pessimistic, optimistic religion in the world. It's a combination of a pessimistic optimism. It sees over against man's sinfulness, man's tragic state, the graciousness of God's mercy, his love and his forgiving power. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for the scandalous grace of Jesus and the way that he continues to teach us even today. We, we come before you and we, we confess the ways that we fall short, the ways that maybe we act out of anger Instead of love. Ways that we, we may hate sin, but we, we forget of your grace and mercy. Or maybe there's other ways that maybe we take advantage of your grace and mercy. And we go and do what we want, assuming, presuming upon you, you'll forgive and in the midst of that, destroy and hurt others and hurt ourselves. Wherever we may be, we are thankful. Lord, that we can come to you in one voice and seek your forgiveness. And in your steadfast love, you give that forgiveness to us. 
Uh, we, we pray that your spirit then would indeed free us, would free our souls from guilt and, and shame, and you would continue to, to lead us in this journey of transformation, of being your people, of sharing that goodness, that grace uh, with others, that we would hear your, your word to that woman for ourselves. You don't condemn us. Now go and sin no more. Empower us, lead us, and guide us. So that we, we may be a, a people that, that demonstrate your grace to others. Lord, we also give you thanks that you, you give us the, the freedom, actually. You even invite us and even command us to come to you and lay before you our needs and concerns. And Lord, you're, you hear the cries of the heart of everyone that's within the sound of my voice. You, you hear their cries and the needs. Lord, we, we pray uh, particularly for Tom Brinkman um, and uh, Chandra and Molly Verhagen. We, we give you thanks for the medical care that they're receiving and pray you continue to lead them into healing. We pray for their families as well as they support and care for them. Give them your peace. Uh, we lift up the, the Hilton family and the death of Tom Hilton and the Lloyd family and the death of Gloria Lord, we, we pray for your peace and comfort upon their families. And, and Lord, we thank you. Thank you that this message of being grace-filled, that, that we know we are in your hands and, and forgiven today, tomorrow, and forever. And we pray that the families would know that in the midst of their grief and loss, they would know that sure and certain hope of the resurrection. That is in Jesus Christ because of his grace and mercy. Ultimately, God, continue to overflow in our lives so that, that we are filled with, with gratitude for all the gifts of your hands. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.